Hey, y'all. Welcome to the White Coat, White Collar Podcast, where we help current and aspiring STEM and healthcare professionals demystify the career landscape. I'm your resident host and corporate scientist, Dr. Aurelia Whitmore. Each and every episode, I'm bringing you along as I talk shop with active professionals. We're discussing career journeys from white coat to white collar and everywhere in between. So turn the volume up and let's get this interview started. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have Dr. Fenera here. So Dr. Tracy Fenera is an environmental engineer, scientist, public speaker, and television host with a bachelor's, master's, and PhD from the University of Florida's College of Environmental Engineering. In research, Dr. Fenera has developed water treatment technology strategies for sustainable design, aquaponics for space travel, and citizen science programs with over 1.6 million users to obtain publicly available environmental data. Dr. Fenera has international media recognition due to her expertise and science communication efforts during the Florida water crisis. Dr. Fenera is now the Coastal Modeling Manager for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where she manages U.S. coastal ocean modeling efforts to gain a better understanding of our Earth systems and threats to human lives and livelihoods in a changing world. You may have seen Dr. Fenera on the Science Channel, Weather Channel, Fox, or CBS, in Marvel's Unstoppable Wasp, or on the cover of Xylem's YSI's Mission Water. As of late, you may have seen Dr. Fenera's latest public appearances on National Geographic, where she discussed the aftermath of storms and solving the myth of shark bites being an anomaly in Florida, and an article on the Daily Mail for being named a finalist for SpaceX Around the Moon. And we're not done yet, you guys. Dr. Fenera also created Inspector Planet which is an educational series where she travels to some of the world's most amazing places and some of the world's most gruesome, responding to environmental problems and solving them through principles of science. Her ultimate goal is to make the world a healthier place for all species today and tomorrow. So hi, Dr. Fenera. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited. So as I just read, you are just so amazing. Your hand is in so many different things and everything really just revolving around making the world a better place, using your science background to change the world, to change those around you and to educate, which is amazing. When I think of a PhD, these are the things I think about. I think of people who changed the world. I think of people who are committed to educating and giving back to the community. And that's what you do. That's a part of the reason why you're here today too. And so I'm so happy to have you here. I seriously, I'm honored to be here. You're amazing. Oh no, you're amazing. I'm trying to get your (laughs) resume girl. (laughs) So I like to start episodes off with an icebreaker. So for you, which is kind of the one I've been using the most anyway, because it's just so amazing to see people's transition, not even just from academia into like their own careers, but also from before college or before school or maybe the freshman year of school when we're still figuring things out. So why don't you tell us what was your very first job, either starting college or right before college? 
So my very first job, besides my entrepreneurial expeditions with selling rocks around the neighborhood, selling people their own rocks. Wait, what? You were selling um, people? <laughs> oh my gosh. Girl, why are you not in sales? <laughs> <laughs> well, I transitioned those skills when I was 14 into mm-hmm. selling cell phones. Mm. And from that, I gained some communication skills, some sales skills. So when I was in high school, I joined uh, DECA, it's called. It was a business group, like FBLA. Mm -hmm. That's another one. And I actually won nationally for their sales demonstration. So that was was pretty cool. My very young work experience actually paid off. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you definitely have, you know, me being in sales, I could totally see your personality being very likable. You know, most salespeople are likable. So that kind of makes sense. So yeah, but as soon as someone's like, I really don't need it. I'm like, you know what, you probably don't. (laughs) Right? You probably don't need another phone. Like, if (laughs) the one you have is working just fine, you don't need it. Makes sense. So You have your bachelor's, your master's, and your PhD all from the University of Florida. And I do want to highlight a pretty cool fun fact about you. And it's the fact that you're probably the only PhD student to graduate without a PI. And we'll get to that. But why don't you tell us about your educational journey? What did you study for your bachelor's? What did you study for your master's? How did you matriculate through school? And why did you choose the majors you chose? (laughs) <laughs> so my journey was uh, quite interesting. It was a journey. When I was in fourth grade, I learned about a hazardous waste dump site right down the street from where I was, where industries had been dumping toxins into a canal way that were leaching into the soils, the groundwater. People started building houses in schools and there were cancer clusters and birth defects. Mm. Now, this happened before I was born, but the impacts lived on. And this started my understanding of how everything is connected. Mm-hmm. What we put into the environment eventually comes back to affect our health. It also started the EPA Superfund program. Mm-hmm. So I went through school and I really was in between business and science. And my dad's mm-hmm. like, anything you need to know about business, I can teach you. Yes. Science, I, I cannot. That's mm-hmm. what you should major in. So mm-hmm. I went to school to play lacrosse instead. I did major in science. I was a bio and geo double major wow. up in at Hobart. And okay. my parents moved down to Florida. They're like, you can't go more than an hour and a half from home. And then they moved to Florida. Mm-hmm. So they're calling every day. They're like, you know, it's wonderful. The weather's beautiful here. And I'm like mm-hmm. going up to the field house to play lacrosse, uphills both ways, through the snow, yes. miserable, sick all the time. And yes. so I applied to the University of Florida. Awesome. They rejected me. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> right. So I was like, no, no, this yeah. isn't happening. So I took my transcripts and I knocked on every door until someone answered. At UF. Yes, at UF, uh, at the University of Florida. Yeah. And so it it just happened to be environmental engineering. And the guy that I talked to, the chair, Dr. Chaddick, he told me that what environmental engineers do is they protect people from natural disasters, make sure people have clean water, enough Mm -hmm. food, clean air. Mm -hmm. They're basically the superheroes of the planet. And I was like, heck yeah, sign me up. And everything kind of from that fourth grade lesson came full circle. Mm. And I ended up being exactly where I was supposed to be. It's, It's crazy. That is awesome. Wow. And that persistence is amazing. Like to to be rejected and like, hell no, here I am knocking on every door, you know, until someone answers me. That's so awesome. So your bachelor's was in environmental science, environmental engineering. engineering. 
in your master's environmental engineering. So what did you focus your thesis on for your master's degree? Well, after undergrad, I actually didn't have the grades to go to grad school. I did the entire five-year program in three years. It was really tough, yes. but it resulted in me not having the grades. UF environmental engineering at the time was top five. You needed a 3.75 GPA to get, and I did not have that. Mm. So I went and worked. I needed money anyway. Yeah. And I took the first job I got mm. and it was in land development. Wow. The universe keeps pushing you into to the planet. Yeah, seriously. It was, the universe literally said, look at what's happening. You don't know about this, <laughs> right. but this is what you need to be fixing. Right, right. So, I, I mean, I would tell the clients, listen, I can save you time and money if you do things more sustainably. You don't even need infrastructure. Hmm. And they were like, nah, I know how long it's going to take me, how much it's going to cost. Right. I, I'm just going to do it the old way. Yeah. So I went back to school to prove that there was a better way. Mm. And so my master's was focused on developing a water treatment technology to clean stormwater and encourage infiltration right where rainfall lands. So basically, we have this water cycle. And then we manipulate that water cycle by putting concrete on our land. So mm. all the water that used to infiltrate into the ground, be treated chemically, physically, and biologically, mm -hmm. now is running off concrete and asphalt, really mm. high rates, mm. high volumes, causing flooding mm. and erosion and ecosystem changes right. and algae blooms, bringing everything that we put on the ground into our natural water bodies. Oh. And so that's what I really focused on for my master's. I was a storm chaser. Wow. And I was chasing storms to test this treatment technology. Yes. And then I needed to go bigger. And I had, if we ever want to really get into uh, the lessons that I learned through grad school with picking advisors mm -hmm. and when to bounce and when to stay, I can talk about that all day. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, it was supposed to be a PhD and I ended up just turning it into a master's mm -hmm. and creating the PhD that I wanted to do with the experience that I saw from being in the field. There's so many academics that have never been in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to use my experience and the problems that I saw to create a solution. What was the time frame? So you finished your bachelor's in three years and then you went in the workforce. How long were you in the workforce before you came back to do a master's? Three and a half years. Okay, awesome. And then you came back to do your master's. So they didn't accept you before because of your grades. So do you think they accepted you for your master's because of your work experience? Absolutely. Okay. My work experience. And every now and then we get guardian angels, mm -hmm. like someone that really is a good mentor. Yes, and for yes. me, it's Dr. David Mazik. And I called him out of the blue in 2000, whenever it was. Mm -hmm. And I was mm -hmm. like, I want to go back to grad school. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make it happen. And so I got really lucky. He's also the one that told me I couldn't graduate with a five-year program in three years, and I did it anyway. <laughs> and he was also the one that told me I didn't have the grades to get into grad school back then. Yeah, and you so got it anyway. <laughs> right. He let me in anyway eventually. Yes, that's awesome. So you came back and you focused your master's on pretty much the problems that you tried to solve from your previous employer. And so then after that, you went straight into your, your PhD program. You know, the, the research that I did for my master's mm -hmm. kind of fed into it. I yeah. used that as one of the, the engineering strategies to restore an urban environment. So basically my PhD was focused on uh, low impact development retrofit mm. or hydrologic restoration, or basically just mimicking the water cycle mm -hmm. through engineering design, mm -hmm. going back into an urban environment or, or any environment and implementing 
these design strategies that remove pollutants mm-hmm. and encourage that natural water cycle, that percolation right where the rainfall is supposed to land. Right. And we have a lot of limestone in Florida. So it's not only ecosystem changes and algae blooms and the fact that we are in our uh, mass manatee mortality event because of our hydrologic changes over a decade. When we're pulling so much water from the ground and then we're not letting it seep into the ground, we're, we're putting it somewhere else, mm-hmm. we're going to get sinkholes. Yeah. And those have been increasing in intensity and frequency as time goes on. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So how do you mimic, when you say you guys mimicked the water cycle, tell us what's the water cycle? Yeah. Great, great question. Mm-hmm. So you might notice at your house that right now it rains. Mm-hmm. It rain hits your roof, goes down a gutter, down your driveway, into a storm sewer. And in Florida, 100% of that water goes to a natural water body. Mm-hmm. So before all of that concrete was there, the rainfall fell, infiltrated into the ground, was brought up by plants, evapotranspiration, and then that water evaporates or it was on the ground and evaporated back up into the sky and falls down as rainfall again. So what we've done with putting all this concrete is not only change the water quantity Mm -hmm. reaching certain areas in our watershed, but also the quality. Mm -hmm. Everything from fertilizers, insecticides, herbicides, everything we throw out our car windows, all of that ends up in our natural water bodies and ends up getting there really fast Mm. by the way that we've designed to prevent from flooding. Mm, I see. So that's in a nutshell. So what my research was, was can we restore it? Can we make it look like nothing is built on top of the ground? Can we? (laughs) Yeah, we are really, really close at least 92% close depending on your watershed Mm. and your geology. But for me, like that disconnection of that impervious surface. So when it rains, and the rain hits your roof and down your gutter, Mm -hmm. if you put that water into a cistern and let it go into a rain garden or an infiltration trench or a pond or whatever it is Mm -hmm. on your property Mm -hmm. or on any property, Mm -hmm. not only does it increase aesthetics, it improves habitat, but it also slows down that water, prevents from flooding, ponding, Mm -hmm. and cleans the water naturally before it ends up in our natural water bodies. Wow. So... How could we, if someone's listening and, you know, we own a house, how could we make a difference? Would you recommend us like making a pond, like putting a pond or having, we would have to have some engineers come out and make sure that the pond is in an area where it streams into it. Like if I wanted to, if someone listening today wanted to make a change right now, like what could we do? So easy. Mm -hmm. All you need to do, cut off that gutter, Mm -hmm. have it go into a rain barrel Mm -hmm. or a cistern. Mm -hmm which is just just a storage tank of water, Mm -hmm. and then have that bottom downspout go into a garden, use native plant species. That's really important because we want to reduce the amount of fertilizer and insecticide that we need. Not only are we running out of phosphorus sources, but those nutrient loads Mm -hmm. going into our natural water bodies wreak havoc from algae blooms and low oxygen levels and just shock to the system. Mm -hmm. So you can do that right now at your own home Mm -hmm. and improve the way your house looks hmm. from the outside as well. Hmm. Nice, nice. Maybe I'll ask you to send me some pictures so I can um, put it on the, the YouTube channel. Oh, I definitely I have. I, I'm going to give you my whole chapter in my <laughs> dissertation. Awesome. Take all the pictures. Awesome. 
So you finished your master's and then you went straight into your PhD. So were there any major differences between your master's and your PhD? And I know we spoke before and there was no one in the college who was able to really support the research that you wanted to do. So how do you graduate without like a PI? And what was that research that no one had experience in? Yeah, so no one had any experience with modeling. I was doing integrated modeling to show that improvements to that urban environment by implementing those designs Mm -hmm. can actually restore the hydrology. So there were no real modelers or low impact development civil engineers. Like I was the first one to go through and do that in environmental engineering. So there wasn't really anybody to mentor me. There was a hydrologist Mm -hmm. and he was such a brilliant guy. Unfortunately, he was an alcoholic Mm. and he didn't tell me that he wasn't showing up to classes. So I couldn't even cover for him. Mm. And it breaks my heart because he's such a good scientist and he ended up getting let go from the university. And so he really didn't have that modeling experience. He dabbled in it a little, Mm -hmm. but what I was doing was really involved. But I had my work experience that was focused on using modeling for civil engineering design. So I was fine on my own. But when he left, I had to have someone mentor me. So two really nice professors, they didn't have the bandwidth, but they stepped in to, you know, play the role. Yes. (laughs) But, But luckily I didn't have to use them too much. Yes. They really helped at the end with editing, you know, going through, reading it, saying, ah, you missed a spot, you know. Right. That's awesome. So after finishing your PhD, where did you land your first job? So I graduated with a presidential management fellowship. Mm -hmm. So anybody that's in grad school and graduating, I highly recommend this. This is a fast track through the federal government, Mm -hmm. and it's just an amazing opportunity. But I had an offer for a nonprofit where I would be running my own research program and I can basically do anything I wanted with it. Wow. And it was focused on both education and outreach as well as research, which really just means that you have two jobs. Yeah. Like I was working around the clock. Mm -hmm. Not that we don't already as scientists, but this was a little extreme, (laughs) but I loved it. I loved every single minute of it. I worked at Marine Laboratory running the environmental health program. And yeah, historically it had been funded on Florida Red Tide Research. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. But very quickly I got into it because I was focused on a different species for my dissertation preventing cyanobacteria blooms. This was a marine species. Hmm. And so it was definitely a challenge, but because it was such a threat to public health, Hmm. recreation Hmm. and economics, Mm -hmm. that 2018 water crisis, and even before that, even before that, when I started in 2015, these blooms, how they affected people. It really like, it just lit a fire of passion. And these are the algae blooms, right? Yes. So tell us about this because I, you know, I've been following you for some time now and I know about it from you, but if someone's listening now and they're like, wait, what happened in 2018? What are the algae blooms? Like, tell us a little bit about this. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot going on in Florida. We have a very dynamic environment. We get a lot of rainfall. We have a lot of wildlife, Mm -hmm. very diverse But we do have some, you know, we are impacting the environment in many different ways. And we have a lot of natural phenomena, too. So over the millennia, we've gotten over 70 percent of our oxygen from phytoplankton. They're essential for the ecosystem. But a few of those species are actually harmful, meaning that they release a toxin into the water that can harm aquatic life. Well, Florida red tide, the species Karenia brevis, is one of those species endemic to the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. 
And what makes it so unique is that the toxin not only is released into the water, but it can actually aerosolize, meaning that it, it can attach onto sea salt particles in the air, mm. move onshore with winds, mm. and cause coughing or sneezing in people that are healthy. But for those that have asthma or COPD, yeah. this can be really serious. Mm. And back in 2018, you know, we have a bloom every year. Is there a season for it? Like, like you know, there's allergy season. Is there like a bloom season? Or it's just, you just, y'all, you just don't know. That is an excellent question. Blooms, we used to depend on blooms starting late summer, early fall, Mm. lasting till early winter. Mm. Now, in recent years, we've seen that shift. And and I have a hypothesis about that. Is it global warming? Yeah. So, Mm. I mean, the reason why we still have so many questions about Florida Red Tide, the initiation, the dissipation of these blooms, is because it acts differently in the natural environment than it does in a laboratory. Mm. It's a very small species in a huge body of water. Mm. And this phenomena is impacted by Earth's systems. Mm. Uh, you can't just look at it as a global or, or as a local event because it's not. But this species in a laboratory, not saying that it can't survive out of this range, mm. but it does best between 65 and 86 degrees. Mm. Now, in the Gulf of Mexico, the minimum temperature is increasing faster than the maximum temperature. You always hear these, oh, the highs, the average, Mm -hmm. you know, you always hear that, but you don't see Mm -hmm. that that minimum temperature is increasing Mm -hmm. more rapidly than the high temperatures. Mm -hmm. So with that low of 65, no longer being reached, that might be one of the reasons why we're seeing not only the blooms start later, but also last all the way through summer, like we're seeing right now, like we saw in 2018. So how do you combat it? I mean, during those seasons, do you recommend um, people to wear masks, do mask work? Is it N95 mask work? Like how? (laughs) It's so interesting that you say that because back in 2018, when I wanted to develop an air scrubber for the beach during red tide blooms, because no one would wear a mask, right? Mm -hmm. No one would wear a mask. Yeah. Who, the, who the heck is going to wear a mask in public? Or on the beach. Right. <laughs> then 2020 comes along and everybody's very comfortable yes, wearing masks. For sure. But masks would work. Yeah. I mean, it does filter out sea salt particles, which the toxin attaches to. Gotcha. You, but yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. as far as these blooms go, some scientists think that it's a naturally occurring phenomenon mm-hmm. and needs to happen to reset the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. These blooms do start offshore. Mm-hmm. The species is a real slow grower. Mm-hmm but it can eat almost anything. Wow. And when these blooms come close to shore, that's when humans can actually impact it. Our fertilizer runoff, wastewater overflows. We had an abandoned phosphate mine release 200 million gallons of wastewater high in nutrients into Tampa Bay. Back in 2018, we had a lot of nutrients coming from a big lake in the middle of the state called Lake Okeechobee. In addition to that, we have a lot of nutrients coming in from wastewater overflows, from fertilizer runoff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just keep on building on the coastline because that's what people want. Right. But there's major implications yeah, with that. Sure. And so your work at the nonprofit, you focused on those algae blooms and protecting humans. So what did you do after the nonprofit? Was it NOAA? Yes. So... Because of that 2018 bloom, and we did have a dual bloom, we had a harmful species of cyanobacteria mm-hmm. inland that was released into our coastal waters with the red tide bloom. Mm-hmm. It was mass hysteria. I mean, it really was a water crisis. Mm-hmm. So to combat the crazy amount of miscommunication that was going on through social media, mm-hmm. 
I tried to do as many presentations to the public because I realized that they listened to me a lot better in person than they did online. So I did hundreds of talks. And one of those talks, someone from NOAA Mm. saw me speak and he came up to me after and we were talking and I told him I was a modeler by expertise, actually. And he was like, oh, we're looking for one of those. Wow. It wasn't until a year and a half later that that job became available. Wow. So I put in my application somehow. Yeah. Somehow I got this position and I am so humbled by it every day because I have so much to learn. I have so much to learn and I was so good at my last job. And it's just so important, you know, yes. like managing our coastal water models. Yes. Like, like that's the information that we need to protect lives and livelihoods. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a huge job. It's not as, I got to be honest, anybody from Noah, I'm sorry I'm saying this, but it's not as much fun. It's just not. I had a blast yeah. at my last job. In fact, I never felt like I was working. Not one day did I feel like I was working at my marine laboratory. But at the end of the day, I realized that we weren't solving Florida red tide because we weren't taking into consideration the fact that hurricanes, Saharan dust from Africa, nutrients from, from 40% of the U.S. might play a role. Blue holes might play a role. Mm-hmm. Water currents, weather events, everything played a role. And we didn't have these answers because we don't have these models. Right, right. And it was the right move. And I feel very lucky to to have this position. I just really want to do a good job. I'm sure you're doing a great job. <laughs> I'm sure you are. To kind of switch gears, I think us as women, sometimes we're really, really hard on ourselves. And we have these really high expectations of ourselves, which is great. And, you know, I think that when we're in because as women, we're usually multifaceted and we're usually used to, you know, doing multiple things at once and handling things. And I think sometimes it's interesting when we challenge ourselves, whether it be with a job or a new project or just an experience where we're learning to adapt. And sometimes that may be, you know, it's it's different from what you're used to, but I'm sure with your resume, your expertise that you're going to do a phenomenal job. I mean, how long have you been in a role now? Uh, 10 months. Right. It's not even and a it, year. It's not even it 12 It feels months. like two weeks. Yeah. Like I learned something. I learn something new every day. That's every awesome. day there's an acronym that I don't know. Oh yeah. That's, that's industry. Like even I can remember finishing grad school and moving to New York and working in like oncology marketing agency and like everyone spoke in acronyms. And I, I still have a notebook full of acronyms that I just went to learn. And so after every meeting I would come back and like, okay, I would sit down with like one of the other fellows, like, what does this mean? What does that mean? This mean, that mean? (laughs) But yeah, I'm sure I can't wait to hear you. Like, we'll have you back on the show five years from now. And I'm sure you're going to say, oh, you know, I created this system. And now this is implemented in Noah's, one of Noah's policies for regulating Florida tides and stuff. So I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, in five years, I hope to be the director of the EPA or the, um, director of NASA Earth or uh, NOS. So we'll see. Awesome. That is so awesome. And Tracy, in addition to, you know, working at NOAA, having this amazing role, you also run a educational series called Inspector Planet. So tell us, when did you start Inspector Planet? What sparked Inspector Planet? Give us some information about that. So Inspector Planet started when I was in grad school. I, I saw my friends like throwing 
garbage out the car window. And I was like, where do you think that that goes? And I realized that they didn't know, or they thought it went to a wastewater treatment plant when Mm. every single drop of water goes to our natural water bodies. But when I told them that, I noticed that their behaviors changed. Mm. And I was like, okay, there's something to this. So I met a freshman. It was her first football game. Mm And she was by herself and I befriended her. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that she was a journalism student and I didn't really put it together. She wanted to make videos mm. like she's a, she wanted to do film. Yes. And I don't know when I had this epiphany. I think it was when my 11 uh, year old cousin was worshiping Kim Kardashian. Yeah. And I was like, no, there's better role models. You should, you should want to be like, and I was like, oh my God, I don't know one female role model on TV Mm. to tell my little cousin about. And I was like, you know what? Like they're putting themselves in positions where they're in the public eye, that they can be seen, that these kids can see their career path so that they can understand that being an Instagram model is not, Mm -hmm. is not the end game, man. You know, you're, you're so much more than that. So I made a video about my dissertation research mm-hmm. called Inspector Planet. I picked that because Dr. Earth was taken and I'm so glad mm-hmm. because Inspector Planet is Inspector Gadget and Captain Planet. So it's sustainability and innovation. Wow. And for me, true sustainability can't be an option with the entropy always increasing. So you have to innovate mm-hmm. in order to extend humanity's time on Earth, in order to try to maintain, not that the quality of life doesn't need to be improved all over the world because it absolutely right. does. So that's where the name came from. Mm-hmm. And then I made a video, Inspector Planet, and I covered, you know, what I was doing for my research. And that's what Mythbusters picked up. And that's how I got the first TV role. That is amazing. So going back to what you said about having role models in STEM and in science on TV and in the public eye, that is something that you have Absolutely. Just as I mentioned on your bio earlier, you've been on the Weather Channel, the Science Channel, National Geographic. And as of late, you have been awarded a finalist for SpaceX. So kudos to you. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about these experiences and really what it means for you to be in a public eye? Because, you know, I know you personally and you're just a humble, amazing, sweet person. And you're very open. You're very talkative. You want to educate. You want to share. So what do all these experiences really mean for you? Wow, that's a that's a really good question. So let me start with I think it's really important for actual scientists, people that are that are in the field to do communication, because there's a lot of science communicators. But there's something about actually going through a Ph.D. and actually doing the research where, you know, you know, certain details about how to communicate because there's always an exception to everything. So it's really important that you make room for those exceptions Mm -hmm. when you're communicating because that's where miscommunication, misinterpretation of a communicator's words can be taken out of context. So despite the fact that my schedule is crazy, I try to make time for doing these speaking and being an expert guest on on a TV show here and there. And I'm a, an expert on the Weather Channel, which I love the Weather Channel. It's I love like, the Weather Channel. It's like Christmas morning every time they, they contact me. I love yes. it. And I have a show on there called Weird Earth, which I absolutely love too. Yes. But I think it's really important that anybody that wants to pursue any kind of TV stuff, that they don't quit their day job. Mm-hmm. This is not a career. Mm-hmm. This is a hobby. Mm-hmm. Very few people 
make TV a career. But for me, my credibility, the whole reason why I keep on getting jobs is because I'm an actual scientist. And so I would encourage any young people out there that are going through school and see scientists on the TV and be like, I want to be that. If you really want to be that, then be a meteorologist. But otherwise, you know, because they really do science. Most of them are actual scientists Mm -hmm. and communicate on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But any other fields, really, like be a scientist first, be good, be the best, Mm -hmm. be the best. Mm -hmm. And then the TV stuff will just come. It will just come. For sure. That's awesome. And just to highlight on maybe a few other things, I know that your journey, you know, because I know we kind of quickly went through your bachelor's, your master's, your PhD. And I know we spoke before and I know you said you applied to like 100 jobs (laughs) and, you know, before you landed a job as the, you know, the civil engineer land development position. And so like for someone who's listening, who may, you know, know about your Instagram page or see you on TV, like. What advice would you give them to not give up and to keep pushing when there's rejection or when life just happens? Like you seem so unstoppable. So like what advice would you give to someone who's wanting to find that unstoppable gene to keep them going? Yeah, I mean, I am relentless. And that's because I got lucky enough to find my passion. But I always tell people this, you know, there are lots of jobs, Mm -hmm. lots of jobs, transactional jobs that you can win every single day. Mm -hmm. Every single day. Science is not, if you're going into science, you're going to lose. You just got to get used to rejection. You got to get used to loss. But I'll tell you, it's like playing that Super Mario Brothers game where, you know, the codes you get to the last the last stage yeah. and you can win every single time by putting in that code yeah. and, and you have success every single time. Right. Well, with science, you're on a new game, new stage, new level with new enemies every single day. And you're going to lose a lot, yes. but it's that 1% of the time that you actually win, yes. that you have the potential to change the world. And that, that is what has to drive you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Absolutely. If it doesn't, then you go work the gap. <laughs> right. That's awesome, Tracy. Well, I want to leave with one other comment, and that is one of your initiatives, which is to have a mobile lab bus to get the public involved and enhance scientific literacy. So before we go, you have to tell us about your mobile lab bus. So it's been my dream ever since before I even had Inspector Planet to have a mobile lab. Uh, Community science, formerly called citizen science, is the best way to educate the public, to enhance scientific literacy of the general public, and to get everybody on board to make changes. Mm -hmm. You know, it cuts through all these political lines that people have associated with scientific opinions. Community science is really where it's at. And that's why I wanted to have an event response because I'm also very impulsive Mm -hmm. and I'm driven by events. So for me, being able to respond to an event or a hazard Mm -hmm. that people report on the citizen science app that I created over at Mount Marine Laboratory called CSIC, and to be able to take a mobile lab over there, get preliminary information before the media gets there Mm -hmm. so that we can communicate accurate information to the public first. Mm -hmm. That's really been a focus of mine. And finally, after a Tesla saved my life. And that's why I'm totally okay with going on a SpaceX ship because I trust SpaceX and Elon Musk. But after my Tesla was totaled, uh, I was like, you know what? 
I need to do yeah. this. I just need to do this. So I got the first part of my mobile lab, which is this monster truck Jeep, which I plan on uh, helping with Everglades restoration, conservation with gators and pythons. But also I have microscopes in the back, all my water quality testing equipment, so I can go and respond to, to events, mm. to water quality events, people suspecting different dumps, people getting sick, mm. animals getting mm. sick, abnormalities, things like that. That's what I've always wanted to do. And that's, you know, I want to have a team of geniuses that I can call on and to help me with each, each thing. And I had my interns at Moat, which, you know, they were like, they were my team. Wow. But that's really, and then I saw Black Panther, the end of Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's it. I was like, that's exactly what I wanted. And I was bawling. I couldn't even talk about the end of Black Panther without crying. Yes. Yes. I still can't. My, I'm like tearing oh up my right goodness. now. Yes. Amazing. So, so amazing. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. You're the true definition of a white coat, white collar, but still in the white coat phase, <laughs> still using your white coat to solve some of the world's problems. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for your commitment to science and your commitment to helping the people of the world and the planet. You're so freaking awesome. And can't wait to have you back on next time. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Seriously, it's an honor. You're amazing. I love everything that you do and it's so important. So, you know, like, thank you for being here. Awesome. Thank you, Tracy. That concludes today's episode of the White Coat, White Collar podcast. If you like these discussions and want to continue hearing more, please subscribe and leave a comment on the platform that you've tuned into today. For more resources on unique career options for STEM and healthcare professionals, please follow White Coat, White Collar on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you love what I'm doing and would like to be a sponsor to help me continue demystifying the career landscape, please visit whitecoatwhitecollar.com forward slash sponsor. Thank you for tuning in and all the best on your career journey. Remember, take the journey one step at a time and don't be too hard on yourself. You got this. Until next time.